1: the science of sports podcast with professor ross tucker and sports journalist mike finch revealing the truth behind the games we play coming up in this
2: episode if you can't make the fields bigger then you have got to make the bats smaller cricket or batting i suppose is more about managing the failure than it is about managing the success because they've weighted the favor in in in, in favor of the batsman dramatically and they need to shift that. And T20 cricketers for me has been really brutal on the bowler. England now and like almost in a perfect storm.
3: So Welcome to the Science of Sports. My name is Mike Finch and I'm along as usual with Professor Ross Tucker. And today we have a very special guest with us, former South African opening batsman, former South African coach. For one-time captain of the South African team and also coach of the Indian team. In fact, World Cup winning coach of the Indian team back in 2011. And I think now also coach of one of the RPL teams. Are you still one of the RPL team head coaches? I am. The Royal o- Challengers O-CBR. Bangalore. Yeah. Gary Kirsten, welcome to the Science of Sport Podcast. Uh, I know that we've, we were quite lucky to get you because uh, it's right in the middle of, I think, is the longest World Cup in history. But you are heading out tonight uh, to do what? what, do you, what are you, why are you going to the UK? What are you doing there? Yeah, the well, thanks, Mike and Ross. Nice to be here
2: with you guys. Um, I'm I'm going over to the UK to take a, a under 13 township team on a the most remarkable journey that they're ever going to have. Wow! They're going to the World Cup to watch three matches, hopefully if they're not rained out, they're not looking good at the moment. Yeah. And play four games as well. And it's a ten day tour. And yeah, for a for a group of uh township cricketers, it's it's an amazing experience that they're gonna have. And we're doing it in style as well. It's a it's a it's costing us about eight hundred thousand Rand in total. Um but they yeah, it's gonna be an amazing journey for
3: them. So you're not going on a rescue mission for the Proteas then? No, they wouldn't want me. They wouldn't want me. I'm too old for that now.
1: (laughs) This is a 12-year rescue mission. It starts for 13-year-olds and in 2031, they'll be ready to rescue the world. There you go. go. (laughs) It's
3: called talent identification.
1: Yeah, yeah, it starts. And it has to start now.
3: Yeah, it's an 8-year, 12-year plan. Gary, just looking at your stats, 101 tests, so an average of 40 Oh, stats, dangerous I know, we're going to talk about stats, but maybe not so much 101 tests, 44.99 was the average there And ODIs, one day internationals, 40.71, so 41 Two test wickets, I've seen two and I've seen three Can you remember if it was two or three? Uh, no, you always remember the. I always remember my wickets. Sam. Yes, because there was only, it was only yeah. two. <laughs> who were
2: they? Do you remember who they were? Of course, clearly. One was a guy by the name of Mark Taylor, who's captain of Australia. Ah, that's a good one. Bowled him with a slider.
3: <laughs>
2: and why and the were you one, bowling? I was bowling because Alan Donald got injured. You wouldn't have ah. thought that that was a like for like replacement, but it was. we were quite depleted in our bowling lineup. So yeah. they threw the ball to me on the back of my second test match. And you must Come have some rubbish off spin and see what happens. Must have been
3: some unbelievable celebrations when you got that wicket. I think it was more shock. <laughs> <laughs> at least you can say it. 275 was your highest score, the Boxing Day test match against England in 1999. And uh, I think it's still the highest score combined with Daryl Cullen and four South African test matches. And then 188, an ODI record against the UAE, but bit of a soft record. Um, but, uh, but still, though, impressive um, batting stats. Do you, as a player, look at stats? Are they important to you? Yeah, I look at the um, the 80 other
2: innings where I didn't get over 50 <laughs> in Test Match Cricket where I got to, didn't get to 20. And, uh, I mean, that's a cra- it's crazy. We always kind of look at the stats and we say, well, 50% of the time you you got yourself, you know, to a, to a decent total. You know, the other 50% you got under 10. Yeah. So I think, for me, um, uh, professional cricket or batting, I suppose, is more about managing the failure than it is about managing the success because yeah it comes more it comes by more often than the failure
3: and when you look at that do you look at your stats and say if i'd only hit a couple more of those 10 less of those 10s and 11s i would have been over an average of 50 which is i suppose i mean that's that's the beauty of of the game you know i think it's a brutal game cricket um
2: certainly in, in in a game where the balls moving yeah um i think golf for me would be tougher because you've got to make that thing move from a dead position but but Cricket's brutal, you know. You get one Mm. and batting specifically, you get one crack at it. There's so many variables, you know. You could do all the training and all the work and feel like you've prepared like as well as you can and nick off for naught. Yeah, you know, because someone else is also prepared, also done well. The wicket, you're not sure what's going to do. You might Mm. get a bad decision, maybe not so much anymore in the modern game. But Mm. um, so all those things you've got to factor in and then deal with the the
3: disappointment of not succeeding, even though you felt you've covered all your bases. Well, an interesting part of your your second part of your career is obviously as a coach. And uh, I can just imagine from it, I mean, it's nothing to do with stats, but it's a moment. Being at that World Cup in 2011 when India beat Sri Lanka and you were held aloft by the younger team members, I mean, that must be, I mean, if you talk about cricket teams supported around the world, India's probably got the biggest support base of any team even including soccer, and being part of that must have been an incredible I had, experience. I had two emotions. One mm. was embarrassment <laughs> because that's not
2: why you coach. You don't yeah. coach to win trophies in my view. And the other one was um, gratitude. Yeah. You know, that there was – they thought that I added so much value, which yeah. I don't think I did. You know, I, think, um, I think coaching for me is not about the win-lose column, although we measured by that. So yeah. we would have to accept that that's why we do the work. But I certainly don't wake up every morning to worry about the win lose column. I think it's more. There's more to coaching than, than two points at the yeah. end of the day. You know?
1: So, yeah. for, for the sake of completeness, let's discuss what it is about then.
2: Yeah, I think I think for me, um, in the experiences that I've had, I've been a coach now for 15 years, and the experiences that I have had, I find it more fulfilling, being able to add value to someone's life. You know, whether it's in helping them as a player, whether it's coming up with a new way of thinking of doing something. Whether it's making them realise that actually you're you're bigger than just walking out onto the field in a professional space and playing the game as an athlete. I think there's more to it. I I find that I've been I've enjoyed the connections that I've had with athletes, in terms of the value that I can bring to their careers. Yes, um, one would look at look at me and say, "Well, hold on, don't you? You know, you won a World Cup. Yeah, I won a World Cup, but I also got." You know, I also got fired from a from a franchise for not doing a good enough job. Yeah. So for me, so does that suddenly make me a bad coach? I'm a good coach for a while, then I'm a bad coach. And my answer is no. I think, I think uh, you you can lead a group of people and you can be very good at it, but you can equally lead a group of people and not be so good because they don't necessarily buy into your way. You haven't won enough of the players over in terms of the philosophies you would bring into the team. So it's a, for me, coaching is a moving target, and mm. often, so, often we, often my view is, I think we celebrate a lot of the time. We celebrate the top end coaches, and we will go, we'll go to them, and we'll say, okay, what are their secrets of success? But I like to look at coaching of of guys that necessarily haven't always done well. Like Mourinho is a great example. Mm. He's had a lot of success, but he's also had failure. You know, so I would like to learn as to why he battled. With a with a team for a you know for a season because I think there's a lot of
1: learning out of that. So would it be fair to say that this trip now with these 13 year old boys will be for you as fulfilling as winning a World Cup with India? It's a great
2: question, Ross. And the the, the only good thing about it is I'm gonna take away the the accountability of performance yeah. because I'm actually not the coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're not. Yeah, I'm okay. just I'm uh, we've got two township coaches I'm basically enabling the event okay. to take place. But uh, but the question you you ask would be absolutely I would I would agree with you that there is there is at, as I get as much enjoyment and pleasure out of watching Shimron Hetmeyer score runs for the West Indies because I've worked with them and I've connected with them um as I would watching my son in an under 12 A game yeah. do well because I've spent time with him yeah in
1: his game that that that's fulfilling for me so it's so sort of semi related to that your first coaching job was india am i right correct so is this is this philosophy now that you've told us about in the last five minutes new to you something that you learned over 15 years or did you have it when you applied for the india job and you just figured i'm gonna change people's lives at the very top highest pressured situation possible in my sport because yeah. it's unusual to go in there, right? <laughs> as opposed to work Not your way it, up there.
2: Uh, exactly, and and I think often what happens is if you work your way up, like any industry that you go, and you kind of reach those milestones, um, you will you will have some preconceived ideas. Number one, and number two, you will have a formula for success. Mm. For me, I had no formula. I just went and took Paddy Upton with me, and um, we just said, let's go take a punter, Really, that's what it was about. I had no clue. I literally went in with the Indian team with a blank sheet of paper. The only thing that I had was my playing career. And thank goodness in many ways because I think that that gave me just a slight bit of credibility. So even if I didn't know that much about coaching, um, then I, I was able to to offer that, which, which again brings in the definition of coaching mm. because can you be perceived to be a really poor coach but the team does really well? And my answer is yes, you can. I think you can – get it really wrong as a coach but the team does well and for me sometimes we we need to understand what actually is is coaching it's not necessarily your philosophy your way um and then the team does well it can Mm. often just be a whole lot of different things that stack up right so i arrived with india it's let's be brutally honest they it was a seriously talented team so Mm. um if i had just done a couple of small things right it was all going to kind of click into place and they were on their way the previous coach had the same team and had really battled because i think he had some preconceived ideas about how he wanted to run the team and it didn't gel with you know with those players so yeah. for me coaching's moving parts there are lots of moving parts and you you almost like i mean i always to chat to eric simons about it but his view on it is i agree we like mm. coaching you like a chameleon you know you got to look at the environment first and what does the environment need of me as a as a coach, and
3: you can't impose your will necessarily if it's not necessary. If it's not necessary, yeah.
2: number one. Um, but then, then what are you imposing? Yeah. I always think for me, I'm an influencer, yeah, rather than a instructor. Yeah.
3: Yeah. What's interesting, I, I, I had the privilege of being a cricket writer in the mid '90s and went to India and Pakistan and followed the South African team and uh, the Indian team in particular. Of all the sports teams I've ever dealt with, are probably one of the nicest. Group of individuals I've ever experienced—they're really pleasant, and it's amazing when you think about them because they have this massive fan base, and they're almost idolized in India. But yet, they are very humble, uh, likable people. Did, did that help with the process of going in there, where they kind of accepted you, they bought into you, as opposed to kind of seeing you as an outsider? Well,
2: I think that was one of the biggest challenges in many ways was 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 to come in as a foreigner and and understand the culture. Mm. And Jeep, as I got it wrong. Many times. I mean, I'll never forget. I thought, cheapest. I need to add value here. Yeah? So, I presented a vision for the team in my first meeting that I had with the team. Yeah. And then I finished the meeting. I'd kind of got a bit of help, you know, done it all really nicely and smartly and everything. Presented this vision. I mean, I was shaking hands with some of the guys for the first time on that meeting. Yeah. Finished the meeting after an hour, or whatever. And Paddy said to Paddy, well, "What did you think?" And he said, "No, it didn't land." He was so <laughs> spot on. What he was saying was like he was saying was they don't get you, mm. you know, yeah. you, they don't know you, mm. but yet you're presenting a way that they're gonna play cricket. Yeah. So in many ways, it was actually an arrogant standpoint to come yeah. in there and think that, but I, I think for me, it was just, I was just trying to add value, you know. Yeah, understandable and, really. Yeah. yeah. But for me, the most important thing from a coaching perspective, especially when you're going like we do in IPL where you have five, six different cultures in the team, is you've got to understand what the identity of the environment is. And the nuances that sit in that space. Mm. when I worked with the Indian team, you absolutely spot on they are just kind of quite gentle people yeah but they're intelligent people so they, they're very questioning of things that you do mm. but if you don't do anything and you get them to do it mm. and all you do is you you enable the, each one of them to thrive with the best version of themselves. yeah in many ways it's a nice approach to have rather than say okay they're waiting for you to come up with something good. I don't have anything, yeah. But what I'll do is I'll try and max out on what sits in this environment, mm. in terms of intellectual property and also skill. Mm. And and we realised that there was quite a lot of tangible in that as well. We realised as we developed with the team, and when I talk about development, you know, in professional sports coaching, developments eight months, six yeah. months, you know, you don't have much time. But we realised the way they trained and prepared was not linked up to match play. So those are the little things that we started to do that we became non-negotiable on, which actually in many ways potentially I think was the turning point.
1: Yeah. What was it from your playing career that made you sensitive to these subtleties and nuances? Like, I mean, or again, similar to what I asked previously, did you learn this in the job or did you go in there already dialed in and understanding that you were a facilitator, that you were an enabler as opposed to an instructor? Yeah. Or did you experience as a player, something that shaped your attitude towards coaching?
2: Yeah, I think both. So, so to, to answer that, I definitely was shaped by coaches as a player. So I had a 17-year professional career. And I mean, I would sit in team meetings and cringe at some of the comments that coaches were making. And they were all uh, um, um, surface kind of no substance to them comments. I always, I always, I'll never forget. I arrived with the, with a South African team in '93 in Australia on my first tour, and I think Mike Proctor was the coach, and he had organised Alan Jones, who was a rugby league coach, to come in and have a have a chat to us. And he had been, he was like this renowned coach, and and I was quite excited to to, to listen to him, you know. Yeah. And anyway, he gave a short motivational thirty minute whatever. I remember saying to myself afterwards, you know. I'm going to play in the biggest game of my life tomorrow, the MCG in front of 80,000 people. And, and, and I remember saying to myself, I'm not sure what he says is actually going to make a difference when I cross the ropes. Yeah. And I don't think it did because I've got to deal with my own stuff. Mm. I've got to deal with my own vulnerability. My I've got to work out a way for myself to be able to manage the performance in, in, in that space. So I think I became, from that moment on, I became... Um, a little bit more reserved about the information and the feedback that was given to us, bearing in mind that it was my career that I had to to unfold, you know. Mm-hmm. And you take someone like Bob Wilmer. I thought Bob Wilmer was a fantastic coach for South Africa as a team. I don't think he added massive value to me as an individual player because he wanted me to play a way that I didn't want to play.
3: Yeah, yeah. So let's get into some of the sort of technical side of the things and we wanted to sort of start the podcast even though we always digress very often in this podcast but what is it like facing the first ball of a guy like Brett Lee with a hard ball at the MCG you're always you've been an opening batsman most of your career what goes first of all through your mind psychologically when you're walking onto the field as the first batsman on the field. And in a high-pressure situation, you've got a bowler that's keyed up, you've got a hard ball on a hard wicket, and arguably you would have faced the fastest bowlers in the world during your career. Just walk us through those those moments before that first delivery and that first delivery. Just one word, fear. <laughs> yeah.
2: Can yeah. you expand Absolutely. on that? What's
1: the object of that fear? Because like I've heard you say this before, so I'm sort of asking leading questions here a little bit, but what, fear of what? Of, What's the main uh, thing? My, my main fear
2: was fear of looking like an idiot, okay, and um, fear of getting out, fear of failure. Yeah. Not fear of being hurt? No. I, and, and maybe I was – I mean, people have often asked me the question, do you have a fear of getting hurt? I, I, never, I never had a fear of getting hurt because mm. I just felt um, I'm in this confrontation. I've accepted that this is what I want to do. Mm. Um, I've understood that I can get hit by a cricket ball so fear was never never an issue f- for me so i would never be i would never get out of line for example i'd always mm. go towards the cricket ball i never go away from the cricket ball and probably in many ways was one of the reasons why i was able to play for a for a long period of time for us as frontline batsmen that is the that is like the, the, the almost like the holy grail of batting if you can't get into line mm. against quick bowling you will not be recognised as a, as a top end batsman yeah cuz you're going to get exposed at some point yeah. So for me, the, my fear was more a fear of what I looked like <laughs> and a fear of kind of failure, of getting out early and, and not being able to make a contribution mm-hmm. to, the, to,
1: you know, to the team. Do you, I'll ask it this way, have you ever encountered a top level cricket, cricketer who doesn't share that same Emotion.
2: no, but they so if, no, if they say
1: they're not scared they're dishonest they're dishonest honest, yeah. in my view yeah. uh, so
2: so I think every so they have it at different levels, mm. but I think everyone is vulnerable out there at the top level of sport, they manage it slightly differently, but when they when they ask publicly i mean you you know I couldn't say publicly to the media well, I, got, yeah. I was really scared out there you couldn't even tell your coach to be honest yeah mm. and um, do you have your players tell you now
0: have no, they' you changed don't.
2: no no I know that... I you know, just accept it. I, there I in accept the background. it. I know, and I don't ask those questions. You know, I yeah. don't say to a guy, oh, "Do you want to play tomorrow?" When I know he doesn't want to play, I know when a guy doesn't want to play straight away if he's faking an injury or or he's you you know. So I would never ask him, "Do you want to play tomorrow?" Obviously, he's going to say yes, but he actually doesn't want to play. So I've got to work out the cues yeah. that are telling me he's actually not he's not up for playing tomorrow. And often we'll do that with a like guys go out of form,
4: mm.
2: and then they. And they, but now, and especially we've seen that in RPL, I've just, just had an experience of that, where guys out of form, the pressure's on, everyone's saying, when is this guy going to score runs? It's actually better to move him away from the space, let him regroup, and then come back. Yeah. If you back him as a, as a player. But I would never ask the player, do you think we should leave you in or leave you out tomorrow? Because he's obviously going to say,
3: no, I think you should play me. Mm, of course. Yes. But he's faking it. So even at the top level, this is what happens. I mean, you're talking about the world's it's biggest players. It's worse at the top is, level, is, is it? Because oh, yeah. I thought the consequence they were in all, of failure
1: is it's so much higher. Yeah. Yeah. The scrutiny, the 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 the, the risk, I guess, bigger.
2: Yeah. Mm. Now, now, I mean, the, the I guess the the antidote to that is is that it, the top players in the world, as vulnerable as they are, have worked out a way. Yeah. To to manage. Right. To manage that space, you know, and that's generally what they talk about. That's what we hear. Yeah. they've worked out a way i mean like for me the, the concept yeah, what of yours i think my um, the way the way that i worked it out was more around i just the only thing that i went to was preparation like i prepared really well and i'm just determination and really that was probably my that in many ways was my my mantra you know was just like guts it out and mm. just determination i used to convince myself you know that i could uh, that i could in a very difficult situation do something that could make mm. a, a contribution i mean i think for, for us as sportsmans, sportsmen we we play to our strengths mm. and if you can operate in your strength um, then you then you're on your way so so if the team required me to go and play an aggressive game yeah i started to feel vulnerable because yeah. I don't think I had the skills for that. But if a team required me to fight, I moved into my strength. Mm. And then, then, you know, the concept of managing yourself mentally under pressure. Mm. When I was in that space, mentally, I was really strong. When I was in a space where I had to take the game forward mentally, I wasn't my strongest.
3: Yeah. So extra high-pressure situations you kind of look forward to more than if, chasing
2: if it was, chase. If it was to my strength.
3: To your strength, yeah. Yeah. In other words, you had to buckle down so and my, stay in.
2: My best situation yeah. was 20 for three. Yeah. Because it just required a fight. Yeah. The, uh, your Something. top
1: score in the, that boxing test match was a rear guard effort to Correct. save that test match. Yeah. So I remember that. And you batted out a day and a half, two days even. Correct. Just holding up an end.
2: Yeah. yeah. And my, and my <laughs> highlight in my, in my batting career was actually the heading lead test mm. um, in my last tour of England in 2003, where I was batting at three and we were 20 for four, mm. 70 for eight. Sure. and I managed to get 100 in that first innings batted with Monndy's on Derke to put put on over 100 and we managed to get to 230 sure um, in that game that mm. was probably my most fulfilling game. We then managed to bowl very well At the second innings we entered a bat we were also in trouble mm. and I managed to get myself 60, 60 odd in that game in the second innings and those that for me was a was a key game
4: mm. Mm.
2: because it made me
3: realize that is absolutely where I thrive. So almost you, you thrived when other people potentially were yeah. not thriving. Yeah. High pressure was when other people were cracking.
1: Correct. Yeah. So, so you were going to say something. I no, no.
2: I, I think I think also just often because I'm fascinated by the kind of mental side of sport. Yeah. And, and you, for me, golf is is probably the most brutal game. But I mean, you just think <laughs> of these, you think of these top players. You take someone like Jordan Spieth. Mm. Okay. Remember the Masters three years ago. Yep. Was it yeah, three years?
1: Put it in the water. Yeah, twice when he had a five-shot
2: lead mm. or a six-shot lead, and then he put it on, mm. put it in the pot in the water a couple yeah. of times, and you I've, and then I've, I've kind of and at that point in his career, he was unbeatable. Yeah, I mean, he was winning most of the tournaments, and and now he's going through a different journey in his life. Rory McIlroy is another one. That kind of because that's what that's what sport does to you. Yeah, um, for a moment in time, you are you you are invincible. That you're gonna it's gonna take you down. Mm. And then, and then for me, the great players are the ones that can have longevity through that. In other words, they come out of that doldrum. They come out of that doldrum and they work out a way and they're probably a little bit more open to acknowledging their vulnerabilities, the things that they struggle with, and they just learn in that space. So yeah. my best test match year was my last year. Yeah. Um, but I definitely felt I was behind the game physically. I was behind the game skill-wise, but I was up on the game mentally. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's what I was going to ask you yeah. because – you spoke about heading the highlights of your career in your last tour. Yeah. Okay, so you went out having just reached a pinnacle moment of your own career. Yeah. Because physically you just didn't feel...
2: Physically I felt I was behind the game. Yeah. I felt the bowlers were that much quicker. I felt I was a bit slower mm. um, and I was ready to, to go. But my, my I was streetwise. So I, I knew how to manage situations so much better. And we often say, oh, we learn from our experiences. And us as coaches are trying to... Mm. often fast track the learning process with young players because we've been down that, been down that road. Mm. But not every player is going to engage like that. You know, they will, they, will, they will make mistakes yeah. along the way and then learn and then, and then be
1: up. So, so you're standing there at the, at the crease and you are anticipating Lee or whoever it is running in at you. What is, how much conscious thought is going on or are you just thinking, fight, like scrap, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to do something. Stay in line and battle. Or did you actually think consciously about these are the shots that I'm putting away. I'm not going to play a hook shot now. I'm going to score runs. These are my zones. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like how much thought goes into batting?
2: Okay. so now Consciously. I've, so I've, now, I've changed my view on that. Yeah. Okay. Since, since I've been a coach. Hmm. So the, to, to, to answer that, I think um, I'm dabbling with the concept of, of premeditation in batting because it's often been the taboo of batting. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait for the ball to be bowled. He's dishing it up at 150 kilometers an hour, but wait for the ball to be bowled and then make a decision. You don't have time. No, it's impossible. Quite simply. To play a type of shot that you're looking to play. So there has to be an element of premeditation. Now, premeditation could be regarded as picking up early cues and then setting yourself up for those potential cues uh, because of the learning of those cues. And you
1: set yourself up to say, I think he might... Bowl this delivery. Okay, so which cues and how early? When you say early, so cues, cues could
2: be a, cues could be a number of things, and 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 it could be it could be from the ball before. Okay. To delivery stride.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: And I mean, I love the concept, and this has been a recent bit of learning for me. Um, um, I've been reading up uh, quite a lot of stuff on the Navy SEALs, which I find really interesting because <laughs> they really are are under under pressure. And uh, there's a book called Team of Teams. Um, never heard it, but I but I've been I've been reading it. And they use the concept in there of emergent intelligence. So what happens is these guys are trained for plan A. Okay. And they mm. and they, they they get put through their their paces. But plan A is, never happens. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And it and that is so relevant on a cricket field, and especially in T20 cricket. Plan A never happens. Mm. So what are you picking up along the way that allows you to make good decisions and smart decisions? So what we're trying to do is in, in our preparation, we haven't got it even closely right yet, is stress test players in preparation. So we, can, we put them into situations where plan A never happens mm. and that they have to start making good decisions under pressure. And those are the kind of cues you pick up and everything that you're learning in the moment that can help you make a Decision, and I love watching cricket players do that, especially in T Twenty cricket, where they make a really good decision because they've picked up the intel all the way, literally to other delivery stride, or or even if it's a bowler picking up the intel to even movement of the batter as he's
3: he's about to bowl the ball. Well, that leads us to. I mean, <laughs> this, yeah. we're getting we're getting to the sort of nitty gritty of this. So, what are you seeing when you're seeing a guy come in? You you you're you're, you're preempting to some extent. Um, but you're seeing the ball leave the hand? Do you see the ball hit the bat? I mean, what do you, or is it just an automated, okay, this is the line, I'm going to swing, I roughly know where it's going to pitch, yeah. I should hit it. So my answer to that in my experience is I think you're seeing space.
4: Mm.
2: Okay, you're not, you know, people say watch the ball. It's actually very difficult when a bowler is doing that. You know, as he's running up to bowl and he's doing this to watch the ball. Mm. So I think what you do is you're watching him run up And then as he loads, you're then looking into that space where he's loading. Spin is slightly different Mm. because the the argument that we have on spin is that you've got to be able to try and see the rotations on the ball rather than play it off the pitch. Before it lands. Yeah. Yeah. Which way is it spinning? We don't don't need to tell you the reason why. (laughs) If you can have a cue that the ball is spinning that way before it hits the wicket, you can set yourself up much earlier. Or if you're picking it up off the pitch, Mm. it's tougher. So… Someone like Rashid Khan, who's become a really gun uh, one-day bowler now, mm. is he's very difficult to read. So guys pick him up off the pitch, mm. but he bowls at 90 kilometers an hour. Sure. So okay. you don't really have the time to set yourself up. So guys have to premeditate properly against yeah. him and take some pants and take some mm. some options. But I think for me, certainly when I played uh, against faster bowling, I think you you're looking into a space unless – I'm facing Shane Warren and I'm looking to see which way he's gripping the ball. Mm. And I did pick it up towards the end of my career again. We talk. I worked out that he his slider across to the left hander where he didn't try to turn it back at me. I could see he he held the ball slightly differently.
3: And those are things you, you just watched many hours of video
2: Yeah, a bit of that, it? but
3: also just playing against playing him. Playing against mm. him, yeah.
2: yeah. And I kept saying, How does he bowl this slider? I'm trying to can I pick up anything? And I worked it out mm. in a video, obviously, but then mm. also playing against him. It was beautiful when I worked it out. <laughs> Because <laughs> then I knew that I could actually hit the ball offside. where I was generally trying to hit the ball leg side because it was turning. It's
3: like playing poker against somebody, but these cards facing the wrong way. But then they get smart, the yeah, bowlers, yeah. and they start Figure holding out the, their towels.
2: Yeah, they hold the ball like that and still turn it. You know, yeah. so it's it's a it's a moving
3: target. I mean, Ross, there is some research about this with elite cricketers, um, how they see the ball differently to maybe club cricketers, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting stuff. Mostly out of Australia. Um, there's two categories. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but In one of them, they they blur people's visions with contact lenses. So they take away your visual clarity. So all you see is sort of an outline as if you're looking through a frosted glass window. And then they check your ability to tell offside, leg side, length of the ball. And then sometimes they even give you a bat and they make you actually play the shots. And what they've discovered is that the best batsmen are not immune, but less susceptible to blurring a vision. So they are able to pick up shapes and trends and patterns without necessarily having to see detail which I think is supports what you're saying mm. and then the other cool stuff is when they they'll give you glasses that at the last moment you can suddenly mm. occlude so they take away all your image they blind you at a specific moment mm. and they blind these batsmen either at the point of ball release at the point of the ball bouncing or not at all and again the same thing is that you can blind a truly elite batsman much earlier, and he can still play the shot. Oh, so he's getting the cues before he needs to see the ball. Yeah. So what's he looking at? Is it, the, is it the left hip of a right-handed bowler? Is it the right shoulder? Is it the left shoulder? Is it, it's probably some composite of all those things, but yeah. no one can tell you what it is. And the yeah. really interesting thing there is that if you try and have someone tell you what it is, they can't do it. So it's yes. a subconscious thing. And the moment you've got to think through it, you actually lose the ability to execute the skill. Yeah, And then the final really interesting one is that studies have looked at where the eye looks relative to the ball and they found that the truly elite batsmen perform what are called two saccadic movements. So a saccadic eye movement is when your eye skips from one place to the next. So if you're reading a book, you just pan slowly left to right. Whereas if you're following a tennis ball, you might skip from one side to the next. And they found that these top, top batsmen perform two saccadic movements the first one is from ball in hand to mm. bounce so their eyes jump ahead of mm. the ball and the second one is from the time the ball bounces to when it hits the bat whereas a mm. club level or a sub-elite batsman actually tries to follow the ball on its journey but now that's the problem the, the ball's too quick to follow so sub-elite batsmen's eyes are pretty much permanently a, a few hundred milliseconds behind the ball Whereas the truly elite athletes put their eyes in front of the ball Brilliant. because they're able to anticipate where it goes, and so that's the that's the key difference in how the sensory motor visual system works, and, and how you teach that I don't know. That's that's someone else's that's someone else's job. I mean,
3: Gary, did you do two psychedelic movements? <laughs>
1: yeah, you know what? I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure did you, you
3: did. did you, know you just that? weren't aware of it. No, absolutely, but yeah. you know
2: what I'm interested to ask you on that is, I mean, I've seen many slow motion shots of batsmen, not even watching the ball but hitting it absolutely sweet. Yeah. You've seen many slimos of that. They're not even watching the ball, but they hit it Crystal. perfectly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's because of that ability to predict. I think so. And so they say now that batsmen, and that's why I asked you about those cues, there are three sources of information. One is memory slash pattern recognition, where the ball before actually predicts the next ball. Correct. Then there's online information, as in what happens at the moment of delivery and with ball flight. And the third part of it is actually just a... So, 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 sorry, they take those cues together and they make predictions of where the ball is yeah. going to be. And
0: Absolutely. that prediction,
1: you can't state how remarkable that prediction is because yeah. it's it's to put the bat and the ball in the same place at a point in time that is literally two milliseconds yeah. long. I mean, it's unbelievable. Coming up... And I think 20 Over Crickets brought a real exciting
2: flavor into the game in terms of how we think about the game. We had games where we won 95% of the game and lost. Them. I think we're in danger of trying to overcomplicate
3: the game. If you ever cricket, a under major threat.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, do you look at yourself as a batsman and think, I can't believe that I could do that? I mean, I once took a challenge to face Alan Donald on the nets when I was in India a few years ago. And uh, the, I didn't see the ball when he was coming off three strides. But for you, you, you faced the guys at full pace. Was Do you look back at that and think, how did I see this? Well, the one thing that I would say just to add on to,
2: to what you're saying, Ross, is that um, I think that we pre, we premeditate or we predict much more than we say we do. Yeah. And, and often we will actually get the length completely wrong but still be able to play a shot. We yeah. still have the skill to be able to do that, you know. So it's changed my coaching a little bit because, I, you know, mm. I've often said to guys, you know, wait for the – especially younger guys, wait for the ball to be bold and make a decision to go backward and forward. But now I would argue that, you know, how good are you at predicting what ball's going to be bold yeah. and getting yourself into the position early, almost cheating it. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly if, if, a, if a coach had come up to me when I was a young player, the one thing I would really have liked to have heard, okay, is you're never going to always get the length right.
4: Yeah,
2: because we used to beat ourselves up in a net when I went back to ball I should have gone forward to so it's interesting on that
1: what the research has found is that when there's a short pitch ball they do these two saccadic movements as I said their eyes flick from hand to bounce and then from bounce to bat when it's a full pitch ball the best batsmen don't even bother with the bounce Yes, they actually just go straight to ball to bat and so they made a prediction that almost takes out that that variable which is what you're suggesting there now is that you can get the length wrong because that's what is going to affect the height, so yeah. basically. Uh, they they seem to be able to anticipate where it's going to be even after that bounce. So, yeah. And then what happens is we confuse reflexes with anticipation. So when you're facing Alan Donald in the nets, Mike, and you think, oh, my reflexes aren't good enough, it's actually got nothing to do with reflexes because batting mm. is not reactive. It can't be. It's a, It's a Agreed. neurological impossibility enough to time. react because you can't see ball leave hand process it from your optic nerve in from your retina along the optic nerve to the area of your brain then to the area of your brain that's going to initiate movement then take a step and move the hands it's impossible so the the movement has to come almost at the same time as the sense does and so therefore you have to have a a predictive component to batting same thing as fielding and i guess any any skill you yeah. You can't do them in series. They have to happen in parallel.
2: So that—that that is just for me. That is a great coaching piece. Yeah. It's a great coaching piece because I—I've just been working, you know, with a guy this week in Cape Town uh, on around T20 cricket. Mm. A young player got some talent. Played his nineteen. And I ended up having conversations with him around understanding the field that I've said to him, okay, and what kind of balls I'm likely with that field I'm likely going to bowl. And he said, why are you telling me that? So I said, because you've got to start making a decision before the balls bowl, what you are going to do? And once he did, Mm. once he did, it was a different game. Yeah.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?
3: Um, not criticisms, but maybe uh, observations of your style of cricket was that you were quite um, – you had a very – you were a tight player. You were a compact player. In other words, you weren't flamboyant. You weren't going to go out there and school runs yeah. at a huge rate. I was but, an outdated cricketer. Well, it would be relevant for the time. And uh, <laughs> I mean, if you read the stories online about you, you were the guy that really held the innings together. So people knew that Worked you were Worked out a st- way. Yeah, exactly. And so I think cool. that was important, yeah. particularly in test matches. But you also did that very effectively in one-day internationals. But when you were standing there, are you you're then limiting – you, the number of shots you're going to play, because if you know you're only going to hit in a certain zone or hit certain shots, that's all you can do. And the rest of the time, you're just going to be defensive. Is that is is limiting the range of shots you play allow you to make have to make less decisions if every time you get a ball, very restrictive and not enjoyable at all. Yeah, but it wasn't. And your I, process. I
2: actually played. I I played the game of cricket purely based on scoring runs. Mm. So I didn't actually enjoy a lot of the time. I didn't enjoy myself. <laughs> so I ended up having I ended up enjoying scoring runs.
4: Mm.
2: I mean you can free the bat. Yeah. But yeah. I I don't coach like it. Yeah. No. I'm I've become no. what what is it? We in generation Z now. I've become generation Z <laughs> because I just love the idea of being able to um free up an individual to really think left field about batting. Mm. you know, and T twenty cricket's created that. Yeah. It's a yeah. brilliant, you know, for me it's a brilliant form of the game because you're under you're under pressure. I mean you you got dot dot, mm. okay, and I'm and I'm t- just dot dot two dot balls. You're under the pump, yeah. Because if you go another dot um, and you hit a boundary, you're still only four or three balls,
3: mm. uh, but you need to be betting at one twenty as a minimum
4: strike
2: yeah. rate. It's so, interesting. I mean, it so just I mean,
3: keeps stacking up. I'm interested to, to sort of unpack that a bit. In that, when I look at one, I mean, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to cricket. I like Test cricket. I, one day internationals, I could just about get. But when it comes to 2020 cricket, it feels like it's just it, you've just got to throw haymakers. And if you connect and you get lucky, you're going to score at a good rate. If you don't, you're out and the next batsman's in. It feels more chance based than it feels pressure base. One only, day you're going to score runs, the next day you're not because it only to be looks. It only looks chance-based because of the
2: nature of the game, the way you've got to play it. Yeah. So you have to play an aggressive risk, high-risk kind of format. But every team's got structure. Every yeah. team plays to <clears throat> their identity and to what they are as a team. And if you don't, you're going to be inconsistent. Mm. The teams that are the most consistent in T20 cricket, specifically at domestic level, I mean, T20 cricket at international level is actually a... It's a non event because yeah. they play so little yeah um but I think what t20 cricket has taught me is um we're moving into a space of coaching specifically where we're linking up um um the understanding of the of the of the data points that come into cricket mm. okay we're starting to marry that up and link it up to how we build our plans for a for a team, yeah. And it, I'm really enjoying yeah. that because I think it's a very fluid <clears throat> fluid space. And from a coaching perspective, you know, I was taught to play the game a certain way, which was very linear. Yeah.
4: Um,
2: and, it, and, it, and, and it was a simple way of doing it and it worked. I could even branch out into ODI cricket yeah. and almost play in ODI cricket. But you cannot. That's why when, when we separate red ball and we go red ball and white ball, you can't do that because… It's red ball, fifty over and twenty over. Fifty over cricket and twenty over cricket are so different. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. Yeah. And I think twenty over cricket's brought a real, exciting um, um, flavor into the game in terms of how we think about the game. It's quite. It's very detailed. Uh, twenty over cricket, much more detailed than Test match cricket. Yeah, I, mean, that, that's, that, I was that's just going to say that curious. because
1: even what we were talking about before, the degree of premeditation as opposed to reaction. Mm. a 20 over game I think exposes a batsman to more moving parts more degrees of freedom more variables so in actual fact what looks like a simpler thing just swing the bats as hard as you can is probably the consequence of more calculations more restrictions without a doubt yeah Yeah. Yeah. without a doubt so when you start understanding actually the intricacies the general perception that test cricket is highly nuanced and more complex actually might not be the case I reckon.
2: Absolutely. I actually think test match cricket is the simplest form of the game. <laughs> you don't actually need too many plans. Yeah. You know, you you know, you know, don't need to, you know, you're not under pressure. As a batsman, you've got time. You can have a couple of bad overs or whatever. You're under no pressure to score runs. Mm. Um, whereas 20-over cricket is on your case the whole time, ball by ball. We we had, I mean, I've just been with RCB, we, we had games where we won 95% of the game and lost the match.
4: Yeah.
3: Because we had one bad over, six balls. But there's a lack of finesse in that to some extent, and there's a huge amount of luck. Not not so.
2: Well, well, the thing is, you know, when we unpack that um, and we say we we've, we've lost that game, I think what it's created is a massive pressure on the individuals. Mm. And now we're trying to teach. Uh, when I say teach, it's the wrong word. We're trying to help um, young uh, yeah, players in that situation to how do they manage themselves through that pressure? Mm. It's incredible. The, the, it's it's not a it's not a hit and giggle just let's see how it works it does sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work the best teams have worked it out yeah they know which bowler who can handle that situation the best with his skill set and with his mind mm. to be able to get through those six balls where we don't end up end up losing the game
1: so where mm. there is a, i guess a little bit of uh quote unquote luck is it's the same as like in sevens compared to 15s is that Two bounces of the ball can lose you a sevens match because there's no time to recover from it. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that one bad over, if it comes at the wrong time, puts you. Can lose your game. Yeah. No. So when you started out and you spoke about cricket being so unbelievably brutal because you can prepare and do everything right, you can still lose the game. Absolutely. and I guess that would happen slightly more often in 2020 cricket, but it doesn't make it more basic. It maybe makes it even more complex very
2: complex yeah. i mean you'll take guys we've, we we'll have a guy who will bowl in his 24 ball spell you'll bowl his first um 18 balls okay and go for 12 and everyone's going three overs and all for 12 what a what a what a great spell but then he comes back and bowls the last one and goes for 28 and over yeah so now we look at his spell and he goes four overs 45 yeah, but the most important thing is not the, actually what the end the stats are. On there. And the mo- The most important thing is he's lost us the game.
3: So the big question is: Has he bowled badly then, or not, or just had and a that's bad what, over?
2: And when we're recruiting players now, we're yeah. starting to look less at the at the stats mm. and more at the match winning contributions mm. or match saving contributions. Yeah. So if you're defending 25 in the last over and and you go for 20, I'm not interested in looking at the stats. You've saved us the match. Yeah. We've won mm. the game because of. Mm. Yeah, or equally if you look at the other way mm. you needed 25 to defend the last over and you lost mm. that is I don't care what you've done the rest of the game that is we
3: need to deal with that and that's not that, that's, in your view as a coach that's not just luck there, there is skill and there is of course there is a for that massive that. amount of
2: skill because we yeah. know
3: that he you know he
2: should never he should never be going for 25 plus Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: you yeah. know uh, he's
3: bowled badly to do that yeah yeah So since you kind of retired and look at the last maybe almost two decades now since 2000, a lot has changed in cricket, particularly with the advent of the short game. Just talk us through some of the advances that you you think have made the biggest difference. I mean, there's things like bat weight that, you know, these heavy bats players are talking about. There's um, the way that bowlers are bowling. Are we losing the the, the strike bowlers of old that we used to have because of the one-day format? Where, where, Where do you think the changes in cricket have happened because of this? Short game format. Oh, geez. I think uh, many. Uh, um,
2: I mean, I've, I've got a view, and i have spending, spending more time in T20 cricket than anywhere else. Yeah. Um, but I've got a view that what they've done is they've weighted the favor in, 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 in favor of the batsman dramatically. Yeah. And they need to shift that. Um, I mean, you cannot have an individual who completely mishits a ball and goes for six. Mm. Um, that's not a fair contest. In my view. So, you know, if you can't make the fields bigger, then you've mm. got to make the bat smaller. So I think yeah. the biggest change that we could make in in cricket, and not, you know, I'm talking more about the the, the unfair advantage that a batsman has over a batsman uh, bowler because of technology. Yeah. But if you've got a bat that thick and you can miss hit it and it clears the ropes, then for me there's something wrong because you've actually you've actually lost the the contest. Yes. The bowler's bowled the the delivery he wants to bowl. You've lost the contest, Mm. but you've got away with a win. (laughs) Exactly. Because the conditions and the environment says says that. Now, everyone says, well, you know, it's entertainment and that's what we want to see. But then what are the advances on the bowling side? What are you giving the bowler that allows him to be more in the Mm. contest?
3: And T20 cricket, for me, has been really brutal on the bowler. Because at at the end uh, of the day, you can have – Fifteen to twenty sixes in a match where you've only got you know eleven wickets to get, so there's more highlights if there's more runs. So I guess from a marketing perspective, you want to have batsmen hitting more runs rather than bowlers getting more wickets. Is it simple marketing?
2: Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. I, I would. I would want a contest because yeah. I think it's as exciting having a bowling unit that can knock a team over. Yeah. You know, in yeah. a difficult situation, and and the game is won, and it's very tight, and it's won because it's a low scoring game, but they got the wickets. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I've had in my mind is is in T20 cricket, is it fair to ask the, the bowlers to have to get 10 wickets? Maybe they only have to get five. Yeah. You know, or, or six. Then it becomes a different equation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, mean, I mean, I in terms of bat technology, so the, the, the bigger bats, I mean, when, uh, Ross and I, I wouldn't class ourselves as expert in cricket, but these bigger bats there's some debate as to whether the the bigger bat it's makes that much difference does it make that much difference in is... my view absolutely
2: it makes a massive difference on small fields yeah you know if the, on the bigger fields you if you can hold out on the boundary with a misset that's I've got no issue with that yeah but I mean we've obviously been involved in IPL a lot it, it just it blows me away to watch some of the shots that have been played that are complete missets that go 10 meters back yeah mm. You know, that's not a fair contest. Well, is that because of the bat? That
3: wouldn't well, happen it if it was be. a bat. It couldn't from be anything else. Ago. Yeah, it can't yeah.
2: It can't be anything else. I mean, I, I get I get that you've got a guy that and, and you would understand that, Ross. I get a, a guy who's got more power than someone else. Mm-hmm. And that for me is fair. I mean, if a guy chooses to go into the gym every day, I mean you take someone like Andre Russell,
4: yeah.
2: I mean he's a massive individual. So I do get that he can hit the ball harder than than other guys. Yeah. But when I and I, if I see him at full swing, so so full swing hits the bottom of the bat, goes for six. I have less of an issue with that because you've got to match up the the natural physical power that he has.
1: Yeah, I mean he's earned the right to. He's miss He's earned the six. right exactly. Yeah.
2: But when I see him do a, make a bad swing and it goes for six, yeah, then that where he hasn't hit it at full capacity, then then the, then we need to address that.
1: Yeah. 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 Ross, comments. What about on the? And this sort of comes back to what we we're talking about previously, where you worked with this young youngster and you spoke to him about the field settings and so forth. When you were preparing as a player, the technology available for analysis of bowling patterns and so forth must have been considerably more restricted than it is now. So, and, and cricket's a massive data game. You know? yeah, second it is. maybe to baseball. It's the it's the stats. I think actually even more than baseball. But yeah, Americans will claim ownership of baseball. How do you manage as a coach and when you were a player the volume of data that you could use? Because it could be misleading and blinding or it could yeah. be useful. How do you make data work yeah. in cricket?
2: So num- number one, I think, um, I think cricket op- operates in, in a very primitive space still with that. I don't think we uh, use data effectively. Um, and the reason why I say that is, yes, we're getting thrown lots of stuff at us as coaches. And, and, you know, maybe it requires us as coaches to be upskilling more to be able to decipher and decode the data in, in
1: a better way. Um, just, so I, just on that, when I'm watching the World Cup later, I'm going to watch India, New Zealand or tomorrow's game for us. And I see they show some Hawkeye stats on ball height and release point and so forth. Is that the data you're talking about or do you... Teams get different data. Because I genuinely don't know what you have access to. We get everything. So I you could tell me how many balls that bowler has pitched full length offside in his last 16 matches. Absolutely. Everything
2: okay. that everything that anyone has designed or invented, we will pretty much have access to. Okay. I think the problem that that cricket has at the moment in, in decoding that data is I've often said to guys, they come up to me and say, Present me with information that I think can be really useful to us building plans for the season. Number one, so in rec- in recruitment, mm. building plans for the season and building plans in our game plan against each individual that is more relevant than my own thinking and my own judgment would have. Mm, and right. at, at at this point, I don't think I don't think the 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 use of data is there yet. Yeah, I still back my own judgment and and my coach's judgment on. On, on a, a decision necess- that potentially that needs to be made. It's mm. interesting um, but, but I think so I've often said to the guys on the data side I actually don't want someone in cricket because you know what happens when guys come up and they want to decode data to us um, they say well what are you what are you looking for mm. I said no that's the wrong question the, qu- the question should be is what can you give me
1: yeah what am I missing
2: Yeah what am I not seeing mm. And that's so, in many ways the moneyball story yeah was that? This
1: right. is what you're missing. You're not seeing this. You don't understand this. You undervalued a certain... Do you know Moneyball, Mike? Um, you left it. I was going to ask you to so, explain the Moneyball situation. Mo- most people might have seen the movie. Brad Pitt and oh, Jonah yeah. or no. Hill, was it? Oh. Uh, played the role of these characters. And basically, there was a guy who took over a team. Was it... It wasn't... Oakland A's. Oakland, Oakland A's. So yeah. Baltimore. Texas, yeah, he's a so fan of this me. movie. I can hear. And uh, <laughs> he worked out that the baseball fraternity was undervaluing certain metrics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that he had a limited budget, and if he spent his money a little bit smarter, he would be able to get good players who the rest of the world had passed over. They weren't so seeing He built yeah. a team yeah. that consisted of uh, guys who, some of whom were written off, but most of whom were just undervalued. It, it mm. was this sporting equivalent of buying shares that most people hadn't yet figured out were going to grow in value, mm. so, and that's that's what he did. Now, so, so it's it's interesting you say that because. I, read, I was over in England a couple of weeks ago and the Times newspaper was doing a series in advance of the World Cup called How To. And there was a particular piece on how to bowl to Virat Kohli. So for those who don't know, Kohli is, and you coached him, so you'd have more insight than most. is the number one batsman in the world. He's exceptional. He carried them here in South Africa. then yeah. almost beat us because of him single-handedly. Yeah. And they interviewed four guys, pundits, former players, international level coaches, and every single one of them said something different. <laughs> so I remember reading this and going like, so now what am I taking from this piece? Is that no one actually has a clue? Because they can't all be right. I mean, one of them said ball full, one said ball short, one said ball straight, one said ball wide. Okay, so at best, three of you are wrong. Right? And those are basically all the options anyway. <laughs> that, I mean, that's, so everything, just do something, right? Now, what what, what intrigues me is and you coached him at RCB, is, did, is there any data that would answer that question? Because, it, And when I watch cricket as an outsider, relatively, I see huge confirmation bias. And when you talk about subjective judgment that you're relying on, coaches can't tell that apart. Commentators do it all the time. They just introduce so many biases because they remember the one time Coley was dismissed playing a pool shot. Yeah. Well, that's the way to get him out. That yeah, seems to me what, hap- what happens. And that's where the data should come in and say, actually, he's played 100 pull shots, he's been dismissed once, and he's scored 367 runs using it. Yeah. So that's not a good way to go about it. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's played 100 cover drives, and he's only scored 150 runs and been dismissed five times. That's where you go. Yeah. So is that the kind of data that's missing, do you think?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I do think, so So we would receive
2: data like that. So we would know, um, so if a team is preparing to f- face Kohli in a 2020 situation at the Chinnaswamy Stadium in Bangalore um, on these conditions at a certain time against our bowling attack, you know, we, we'd we get all those data yeah. points. We would understand where his strengths are, where he likes to hit the ball, how many times he's been dismissed in certain areas. Yeah. I mean, it goes to to incredible levels of detail. Yeah. Um, I think I think a couple of points there. Number one is, first of all, does how you are trying to analyse to get a player out play to your strengths? In other words, do you have the bowler that can bowl that delivery? Mm. Because if you if you get it slightly wrong and Coley hits it for full, okay, your plan could go out the window in,
1: in, incredibly quickly. So you've got yeah, to marry. But your, but your plan was right. It was the execution? The execution you can't execute. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: The other thing you've got to factor in is what is the condition of the wicket? You know that the wicket can change you know, regularly over periods of time. The other thing is, what is the situation in the game? So I don't think, I think cricket, there's there's an incredible Mm. amount of variables. Number one. Number two, the biggest challenge that I have around understanding data for me personally as a coach is I'm definitely wanting to take take subjectivity out of the equation, but the one thing that I can't deny is I'm the leader. Mm. Okay. And I've been recruited to this position because of my skill as a leader. My judgment, um, there is definitely subjectivity in it. And I've got to, I have need to be able to back myself in the decisions that I make to allow us to win more games and lose games because ultimately that's what I'm going to be measured on. So I've yet to come up with some, some really information that it just absolutely grabs me and says, you know what, forget your kind of leadership space and your judgment. This stuff has got stuff that is really going to help you win games in the next IPL.
1: That doesn't exist. So, well, I'm not sure. Well, it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you've not seen it.
2: I haven't seen it yet, and we all dabbling in different spaces. And you'll often have a coach come up and say, "Oh, I've got the best video analyst in the in cricket," and then I say, "Well, what does he do?" You know, and mm. I, I'm not hearing yeah. anything that's remotely so, or remarkably different. But you don't know what you want to hear, or do you have an idea great, of what? Great you point. Want. Yeah, I don't know what I want to hear. But what I will do is if you throw something at me that in my judgment as a leader or a cricket person that says, hold on, I need to think about that, mm. like a Moneyball story. Just think of how they had been scouting for players through Major League Baseball for so many, so many years. Mm. This guy who's an economist comes up to the general manager and says, you need to look at it another way. And and it bit. Mm. It made sense to him. That's
1: yeah. It's ultimately what. we're So, look for. given a choice, and they are never binary like this, but for argument's sake, would you rather have no data and rely on experience and intuition, instinct, and subjectivity? Or would you rather have all the data you've got, most of which might be misleading? And
2: I would like, I would like, a, a I'd like a hybrid. Yeah, I would definitely like course, a hybrid, yeah. but because I'd like to think that I can add some value, otherwise, put a machine in as the coach. Right. Um, <laughs> but I would like to. I need to understand, I need to have better data better data yeah. that I can hold on to. That's what I'm looking for
1: as that, a coach. It's also interesting because that attitude, more significant. That, that philosophy or mindset of I'm going to be accountable for this and eventually it's my head on the block, that's what drives people to overvalue data because it's like cover your ass use of data. Yes, and they use and it as a, a kind of a cop-out yard. Yeah. As a security blanket yeah. slash excuse for when things didn't go well, the data misled us. Yeah. And it's not me. So I've seen sports teams that over manage and over measure and over rely on science and data because the humans are insecure.
2: Yeah. And also how trustworthy <laughs> is the data? Well I think we I think that? that's where cricket is is at is at odds, is that I think we don't we don't always trust the data. And who, who who's
3: we? The leaders. Mm. <laughs> so if you if somebody said to you Vera Coley is weak when the ball is pitched Short of a length, and that is that is his weakness. Rather than where you, you I mean, you, you, if you knew that he had a sort of a physical limitation in a certain area, that would be real intel, wouldn't it? I mean, whether you could ever do that is that's the kind of intel you'd almost be looking for. Absolutely, but yeah. I can tell you now that what
2: because I know Vera Coli's game really well, yeah. that weakness or that per- perceived area to bolt him because it's a vulnerable area for him only plays itself out when when he's not in a good space. Mentally.
4: Mm.
2: When he's in a good space mentally, that ball goes for four. Yeah.
4: yeah.
2: That's the yeah. That's a beauty. I mean, we're not dealing with machines yet. Mm. Mm. We're dealing with human beings, you know. And when someone gets out playing a shot and he's maybe done it a few times, I mean, I always used to laugh going back to my career. Um, uh, three games um, in, in the space of five games, I tried to play a back foot drive and got an inside edge. And it <clears throat> went on to my stumps. And there was a big talk around Gary needs to tighten up his technique. Mm. Okay. Um, so we, so when I went and worked on it, I did absolutely nothing. Yeah. I just carried on training exactly the same way I played. But what happened is I started to get some runs again and I got into some good form and that issue went away. Yeah. What I was doing was I was chasing balls that was manif- – I was, I was chasing balls down. When I was in form, I wasn't because my I was relaxed. mm I was in a good space. So I wouldn't go and fetch a ball outside off stump mm. when I was feeling good about myself. When I wasn't feeling good about myself, I went to fetch a ball, and then what people would see would, would be the result of that. Yeah. And the result of that angle of the bat, bad technique. Go work on your technique. Mm.
3: Yeah. Actually,
2: wasn't my technique. It was actually where I was in a
3: mental space. Mental space. Where where where's your weak point? I mean, if there, if you had one, where were you? Vulnerable? My weak point was my strength. Which was? Cover drive and the cut. But I
2: got out yeah. plenty to both of them. But, but you loved was, hitting them? Well, I, I wouldn't stop. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, I mean <laughs> I'm I, I mean, I serious. I got most of my runs playing those shots, but I also got… It's risk-reward. I mean, yeah, I got out like- to them most of the time. The key mm. for me was to work out when to do it and when not to do it in my game. Mm. And then also where I was mentally. Mm. Generally, I would go chase a ball outside off something. I was out of form because I wanted to score and I was pushing, pushing at the ball. My
1: hands would go away from my body and I'd nick off. Yeah. Yeah. We've, been, we've obviously been very batting centric because of course because Gary's batting career despite his two wickets his batting was a little more <laughs> successful but what's your instruction to the like when I'm watching Kumar or Rabada or Cummins at the top of their mark and they're running into bowl do they have one thought in mind or do you reckon they've got five like what's their plan well I, I in T20 cricket I reckon you can't have
2: one plan at the end of your mark so we we, we in coaching debated that at the so moment. So there are no plans. Yeah, you've got to... and then I'm going to react, it's, actually. It's emergent intelligence. Yeah, you've got to yeah. pick it up as you go along. You've got yeah. to feel it. Now, you might have a something in the back of your mind, I need to go this delivery, but you might have to change in your run-up. Now, test cricket, you don't have to. Test cricket, you can go one delivery. Mm. You can go one thought. But t- T20 cricket is now, is just changed the landscape so much. And I mean, I remember Darren Goff many years ago, I had a conversation with him. And he said in England, he's teaching guys to be able to bowl a different delivery from that position, from load. To can change bowl, it as they load. Can you bowl three different deliveries from load? Mm. And they 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 did it. They, it was a colour thing. So what he would do is as he loaded, flash a colour, and that colour meant you got to bowl a wide yorker. This colour meant you got to bowl a bouncer. So he was training guys to bowl the different deliveries from the delivery stride, which I thought was I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and we definitely are not. In T20 cricket, we are not even remotely practicing the way we should practice or prepare the way we should
1: prepare. Yeah, and that's not unique to cricket, by the way. When I speak to rugby coaches, they say the same things. It's decision-making under pressure, which I want to still come to to wrap up, I suppose, but also in response to what someone else does because you're not making a decision independent of your opponent. Correct. So would you say, based on everything we've spoken about, actually, that the best players are the ones whose skills are agile and changeable. Absolutely, natural. and
2: and 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 are willing. But I, okay, so let me just add to that. You take Ribada for example. The one thing Roberta has before he runs up to bowl, he can bowl 145 k's. That's one thought. Okay, so I think like an Andre Russell who has natural power and can miss hit a ball. Okay, for six and still win the contest. I think Rabada at 145 can mis-execute and still win the contest because he's 145. Mm. So, so again, the the less you have of that as a fast bowler, in other words, the difference between him bowling and a and a and a 130 bowler bowling is you don't have that. You're not going to get away with it. You're not going to get away with a mis-executed 130 ball. It's going to go out the stadium. Now you have to have lots of tricks. Mm. So I think I think um, your, your skill level before the event starts, you need to understand that
1: and need, and need to
2: understand what you, what you can do
1: with so it. So just now. on that, do you think that we overcoach then young, from a young age, from the age of 14, 15 as a, to, to, to try and almost teach people not to do these things that you're now identifying as being crucial to success.
2: As a, as a blanket answer to that, absolutely, yes, we are overcoaching.
1: Without a doubt, by a long way. And So the future will belong to the Indian self-taught players who potentially learn adaptations in their own game through the environment they learn the game in. West Correct. Indian batsmen, uh, the more natural, what looks like to us, flair is actually just unrestricted learning.
2: Absolutely. Unrestricted learning. And, and I mean, you made the point and the environment is set up for them to be able to yeah. fast track that learning. Like I, I really enjoy um Shimmer and Hetmeyer from the West Indies. Mm. Now they come from a, an environment where there's less structure to, to the coaching patterns. But I tell you what, do you have a conversation with him around the game of cricket and what he knows and doesn't know? He is learning somewhere. And I asked him, I said, you've got leadership in you. How do you learn? Mm. He says, I watch games. I watch games. So, so I mean, I'm, what I'm doing, I'm encouraging my 12 year old and my 15 year old. I say to them, "You're not allowed to watch live TV. Te- You're not allowed to watch TV in the week, except if there's a game of live sport. <laughs> then you can always watch it because you can learn so much from that, you know." But I agree with you. We we are over coaching, um, and and w- w- where are we taking players to? We're taking them to what my best thinking is. That's where we're taking players to, and and my best thinking. I've got lots of reference points from that, from how I was brought up, mm. and for me, they, they're completely outdated. The way I was con- coached is completely outdated.
3: So, what you're both suggesting here is that the the fundamentals are less important than learning just by playing or watching or by osmosis, essentially. I mean, is, is that is that? Were you t- I mean, you still have to learn the fundamentals of a forward defensive when you're playing at school, but are you saying that that is less important now than it was? 20 years ago? Mike, my, my view is I wouldn't,
2: I wouldn't say the fundamentals are less important. They mm. are very important. The bottom mm. line is if I throw a ball to a 12-year-old, okay, and I can knock the stumps over three out of four balls because he can't play the ball straight, that's an issue.
3: He still has learned to put pad. Yeah. pattern. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: But I think what we do need to do is we need to how – do, how does a guy get to the point where he can hit every ball and mm. hit it well? Mm. And I think that's the, that's the piece for me. Like, I mean, I'm working with my 12-year-old. Um, and, and he's got a nice bat swing, he's a decent player. My challenge will be to move away from the from what the fundamentals are now in his game. He can play a straight drive. He's not. I can throw as many balls as I want to him. He's not going to get bold, but now he needs to play. Mm. Now he needs to learn how to play the game. He needs mm. to learn how to hit the ball, score in different areas, take on what he wants to take on. And that's where I've got to move away from that, and I need to let him just feel that out. Make the mistakes, but feel, feel it out. What is it like to hit the
1: ball?
3: Does he have real flair like his Uncle Peter? Yeah. <laughs> I think so.
1: <laughs> you know what it is, though? It's, it's like at some point it's a, it's a marriage. I use this analogy because it's come up in rugby. It's a marriage between industrial revolution, straight line structure, formulas, and renaissance, which is yes. art and space and so on. And <clears throat> Like I think the World Cup right now, England's one of the favourites. I think they found a balance between those things. Some teams are maybe too heavily on the one side, some teams on the other, but that's where the the, the pressures and the, and the evolution of the game, I think, is pr- has has prioritised a hybrid of those two things. It's straight lines versus no lines. And just rem- and just yeah. remember
2: on that, I mean, England's a great example. They they've come out and let let rem- and they play really good cricket. Let's remember one thing: it's a very skilled group of cricketers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Joe Root, who's a massive part of that team, still plays a very structured, organized way because that's his skill his sets. I remember when we played against Australia in the 90s and everyone was raving about them scoring at four runs and over at Test match cricket. Everyone said, well, this is the way you've got to play. You make up time, you've got time to bowl teams out. So we tried it once or twice and mm. realized that actually we're not skilled enough to score at four runs and over. Mm. We don't actually have the capability to do that. Mm. So I think that's a very important point. And I think England now in like almost in a perfect storm. Yeah. where they've got these players that have incredible skill, but now they've got license to just go take it on and mm. play a really aggressive game. It's mm. great to watch.
3: What do the modern cricketers do now that they didn't do 10 years ago? Are they off-the-field stuff? I'm talking gym work and other sort of training psychology. Is, there, is that a part of the game now internationally? Different to oh, what yeah. it was I when mean you were the, playing? The,
2: the, these days, the, the the modern athlete, and I even take it into to cricket, which probably is a there's an argument that cricket can get away with it more than other f- physically orientated sports, but the like, the athletes are just so professional now. I mm. mean, you take the drinking culture, for example, that has always existed, existed in team sports over many many years. I mean, you will. It's not uncommon to have a team where you'll have you know six guys out of the eleven that don't touch alcohol, mm. for example. It's not uncommon. You you will see that today. So I think the athlete is now. You know, the, there's a real um, direction in terms of okay, I've got a 12 or 10 or 12-year career. I'm going to max out it, do it as best I can. You mm. still get your examples where guys think they can make it work um, by by cutting off corners somewhere. But I've been very impressed with the modern athlete now in terms of where they the way they approach it.
3: So they're, they're conditioning themselves way beyond just the pitch. They're they're in the gym. They're doing. Yeah, all I just the think the discipline is well, next yeah. level. Yeah. 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 Ross, awesome. I mean, it's, it's kind of the trend across most sports, isn't it? I mean, whether you're playing golf, golf used to be the same sort of
1: characters in the bar in the 19th for ages. Now they're, they're actually fit, healthy human beings. It's driven by necessity also because as it becomes more competitive and as the commercial value of being successful increases, mm-hmm. there will be five players who can all do the same thing. And the one who succeeds will the one be the one who is more durable, mm. okay, doesn't get injured, mm. and the one who can do it half a second faster, mm. and the one who can carry his weights in the field. And so therefore the ability to physically perform becomes mm. potentially a differentiator, mm. and as long as the incentive exists, that will then drive. The, the change in the behaviour, mm.
3: Gary. I know you've got to head off to the airport, heading off to the UK for that uh, for that uh, month long. Just a final question: Looking at all the things you discussed today about the influence of the shorter game, where do you think cricket is going? Uh, where does Test cricket sit in this fast-paced game that we're watching at the moment? And and you know the players themselves: Are we are we going to lose these fast bowlers? Is it the the age of the super batsman now for the next potentially next ten years? I think cricket's in a very interesting space at the moment. I mean, we've got three
2: formats of one sport, which makes it complicating to start off with. We're about to now start a fourth format in 100 ball cricket in England next year. So I I think we're at danger of trying to overcomplicate the game. Mm. That's my one point. My second point is where is everyone going to? What does everyone want to watch? And there's still enough interest in test cricket. I think T Twenty cricket is just a very powerful entertainment product, mm. so I don't think that's going to go away because they've worked out how to build a domestic product out of it. And for me, if you look at all the other sports around the world, um, they are domestic products; they're not international products. Yeah. International events are iconic events where countries come together to play against each other. But ultimately, sport moves to, you know, to to the the where it's domestic. You know, and where, yeah. you know you support a city we support a team from a re- from a region um so i think cricket is is in a revolutionary space really yeah where t20 cricket is taking over test cricket's holding on for dear life 50 over cricket in my view unless they create some context in it 50 over cricket's under major threat It's still a world cup event is still a great event to watch yeah but it's under major threat because you 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 cannot get people up for a, a west indies uh, Pakistan five day series in Dubai. Yeah. You won't get hundred people at the stadium. That's yeah. a
1: problem. Mm. Yeah. Last final comments. No, the, the problem is when you have two extremes, the thing in the middle is always going to die because what does it offer that the others don't already do? If you want excitement, quick entertainment, you've got the 20 over. If you want what the purists like, the slow evolution, the contest, the nuance, you get the test. Correct. And then 50 over comes in the middle and it's, yeah. So, so I think World Cups and maybe every second year, mm. another tournament in between, but mm. I'm with Gary on that. The biggest problem facing cricket is not on the field. It's the commercial issues around the side of the field. And, the, and what seems to me to be like the severe imbalance where all the money sits between England, Australia and India, mm. especially India. And then how do you sustain what are actually historical powers in cricket, the West Indies, the South Africans, Sri Lankas, Pakistans, when they don't have anything like the pulling power. It's actually not, again, dissimilar to the situation in rugby where you've got a pool between club and country, and you've got a disparity between who where the money sits and who needs the money. So it is an interesting time for sport, I would say, and cricket typifies that maybe more than most.
3: Gary Kirsten, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.
0: Hold up. What was that?